My favorite way to unwind and dive into something more fun is June's Journey. The game lets me channel my inner detective and unlock compelling stories, strong female characters, and a mystery I want to solve. If you like true crime podcasts, it's the perfect game to play along while you listen. The Hidden Object Mystery Game will put your detective skills to the test in the roaring 1920s. You play as June Parker as she tries to solve her sister's murder and along the way uncovers family secrets. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Mystery, danger, romance all await you if you download the game now. I'm on chapter four and wondering how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. A loving father had a zest for life. He loved his kids unconditionally. He was a people person. Like he was good at just being an all around fun person. Until one day he mysteriously disappears. I called and called and called, never got an answer. He usually answers his phone. Fears boil over when a watery grave is discovered by a Florida fisherman. Something was in the water wrapped in a shower curtain. He realized that it was a body. There was an obvious uh, hole in the head. As the investigation begins, potential motives spring to the surface. He was very flashy. He wore a lot of jewelry. He was known to carry a lot of money, numbers like $1,000 or more. But will a secret double life lead detectives to their most unlikely killer yet? He's a hustler. He's going to do what he can to make money. He just said that he did some things that he's not proud of. It kind of scared me. Did you not talk to the person who shot him? I did. I talked to the person who wanted him shot. They were going to just dump the body. The alligators are eating. It's sad to say this man was thrown out like trash. It reminds me of a person who has no conscience. This was a cold and callous crime. I walked in, and I was like, holy smokes. I had to pick my jaw up. February 28, 2001, Yulee, Florida. Just north of Jacksonville, Lofton Creek flows towards the Atlantic Ocean near State Highway A1A. The general area of Yulee would be classified as rural. Uh, that specific area of A1A um, is sparsely populated. 
Around lunchtime, 72-year-old James Gillis heads back to the dock after a morning of bass fishing. As he pulls up, he notices what looks like a shower curtain in the water. There's a lot of activity down there, be it fishing from the dock or launching boats. And with a relatively populated RV park, so different items could wind up in the creek pretty easily. But when James steers over to determine what exactly is in the water, he discovers that his quiet day of fishing is over. It looks strange that something was in the water that large wrapped in a shower curtain. We realized that it was a body. The fisherman contacted us and said that there was a body located in Wafton Creek and that he had secured the body to the floating dock in the area. I was assigned to the detective division and Muley was my area. I turned around and went straight to the scene to, to see what was going on. As detectives raced to the crime scene in Yulee, 30 miles away in Jacksonville, Florida, a woman named Emily Sheely hears a breaking news story about the body found in Nassau County. The news gives Emily a sinking feeling because her 31-year-old son, Paul Sheely Jr., hasn't been heard from in over a week. Now, it's been like a week and a half, but I see my dad and I'm a kid. I ain't seen my dad in a week and a half. It's been a long time to me. There was some speculation in the family because nobody had talked to Paul for a little while um, that something might have happened. His mother had already had in her mind that that might have been her son. Paul Sheely Jr. was born on July 17, 1969, in Jacksonville, Florida. Paul was the only child. He loved his mom. That, that was his heart. He loved to travel. He liked to go out of town. After he graduated high school, he went into the Navy. After four years in the Navy, Paul was discharged for medical reasons and returned to Jacksonville. Paul bounced around jobs, working as a day laborer, a car salesman, and even a funeral director, trying to find a career that would stick. But Paul's real passion belonged to his social life. He loved to hang out and be in clubs. He loved jewelry. It's a lot of bling that he had on. That's one thing I know he did for sure, stay smelling good, looking good, like, at all times. He was a people person. Like, he was good at just being an all-around fun person. He always was the party goer. He always was, he always loved to hang out, have fun. He was a very, very popular person. Paul was especially popular with women. And by the time he was 30, he had fathered eight children. He was real popular with the ladies. I mean, how many people have eight kids? <laughs> I mean, it's a lot, but you know, they gotta be quite popular to be getting fucked out eight, you know what I'm saying? Although Paul didn't settle down with any of his girlfriends, he was devoted to his children. That's all he talked about was his kids. He loved his kids unconditionally. Um, take them shopping, school, back to school. And they was his pride and joy. He even had all of his kids tattooed on him. I got every pair of Jordans that came out. The day they came out, he had them, I had them, and any of his other kids that was around had them. He was a great dad. Sometimes maybe he didn't show up when I wanted him to, but he always came through. 
While dropping off one of his kids at a Jacksonville daycare in 1998, Paul became enamored by one of the daycare workers, 26-year-old single mother, Alicia Lee. Alicia, who went by Lisa, was born in Jacksonville, Florida on March 6, 1972. She had uh, three kids, two sons and a daughter. If I was there and her kids adopted her kids. For Lisa, her church and her kids were the most important things in life. She was this nice, mild and mellow person. She was really quiet and she was pretty nice. Paul took care of Lisa and treated her children like his own. He was all the way was always good. Taking care of other people, making sure other people was good. Like that's that was what he did. In the summer of 1998, Paul and Lisa moved in together. He was all that she ever wanted in a man, and obviously he felt the same way about her. But in February of 2001, life takes a disturbing turn when Paul seems to vanish into thin air. His mom called his phone. I called and called and called. We never got an answer. It wasn't coming because he usually answers his phone. Fears deepen on February 28, 2001, when the body of an African-American man is found floating in a tidal creek. Investigators from the Nassau County Sheriff's Department first consider the possibility of an accidental drowning. Fishermen, swimmers are known to die, known to fall overboard, known to get caught in a riptide. Uh, it does happen. But as Detective Gregory Foster peers down into the murky waters, the victim's injuries suggest something far more nefarious. I had walked down the, the boat dock to, to see the body. I remember that there was actually a fish that uh, came swimming away from his head area, at which time I, I looked down and there was an obvious uh, hole in the head. He had a single gunshot wound to the head. Coming up, the search for clues brings theories to the surface. The initial thought is maybe he was robbed and murdered and a family braces for devastating news. Things like, oh, Miss Shirley, you might want to take a seat. You prepare yourself because it is one of the hardest things you do. On February 28, 2001, detectives with the Nassau County Sheriff's Office in Yulee, Florida, are attempting to identify the body of a man found floating in Lofton Creek with a single gunshot wound to the head. It looked relatively fresh. Um, it, it did not appear that there was any decomposition at that point. Being a rural county that is bordered to a larger metropolitan area, the first thing that comes into your mind is a potential dump job. There is gang activity up there uh, in, in certain parts of the northwest side. And it's an area of Jacksonville that's known for murders. Before detectives can determine if the murder is gang-related, they need to identify their John Doe. You want to hopefully find identification on him. That's your best. But he didn't have any. The victim is transported to the Duval County Medical Examiner's Office for an autopsy and a fingerprint analysis. While police await further word from the ME, a dive team arrives at the scene. 
you know, it makes it difficult in a body of water, but we're looking in the area to see if there's anything that would give us a clue of where they came from or who they are. They recovered a five by seven area rug, a shower curtain, a piece of green cloth, a set of needle nose pliers, a piece of a gold chain. Detectives also find a pair of eyeglasses. They found some glasses. They look more for woman's glasses. At this point in the investigation, as far as any of those items, it was unknown if that was traceable to the victim or not, but that's what they found. The collected items present no immediate leads, but detectives hope the autopsy will. On March 1st, 2001, the medical examiner informs detectives that the victim's wound is consistent with a 38 or 380 caliber weapon. It was advised by the medical examiner's office. Uh, it was a single gunshot wound to the head was the, the cause of death, and, and the method was a homicide. Detectives get their first break in the case when the medical examiner runs the victim's prints in the state's database. One of their evidence technicians advised that he had been identified. It was uh, a gentleman named Paul Sheely that lived in the Jacksonville area. There are no missing persons reports for Paul, but he does have a record. Mr. Mean is basically driving while license suspended and things of that nature, but nothing violent, nothing that actually stood out. From there, the next step would be going out to the next of kin. You prepare yourself because it is one of the hardest things you do. On the afternoon of March 1st, detectives arrive at the home of Paul's mother, Emily Sheely. It's like, oh, Miss Sheely, you might want to take a seat. And when they said that, she just lost it. Like, she already knew. Like, she was just, oh, my baby. She hit the floor. It's like, my baby, go. She wasn't able to give us any information at all. Uh, she was extremely emotional. As Paul's mother struggles to collect herself, detectives turn to the only other adult at home, Paul's half-brother, Cassius Wilcox. Cassius tells police that after not hearing from his brother for more than a week, this has been the news the family was dreading. We asked, is there anybody that you would think would have done this? We asked about any kind of involvement in the drug trade or use of drugs. He was very clear that his brother was not one to go out and hurt people. He wasn't a drug dealer. Everybody who I know that knows my dad, they speak very, very highly of him. Like, he was very, very respected. He was very caring, very giving. Cassius does admit that Paul had a reputation for being a little flashy. The victim was known to go out to a lot of nightclubs. He was known to carry a lot of money, numbers like $1,000 or more. He always had jewelry and nice clothes and money. That's always a cause for concern, simply because the initial thought is maybe he was robbed and murdered. Though he was once a social butterfly, Cassius says that Paul hasn't been going out as much since he met his new girlfriend. We found out that he was living with a girl named Lisa Lee and that they lived in the Second Avenue area of Northwest Side Jacksonville. On March 2nd, 2001, investigators with the Nassau County Sheriff's Office arrive at the daycare where Lisa works. 
She tells police that family members have already informed her about Paul's death. I remember her to be generally calm. She was cooperative. Um, obviously, she went through periods of, of sorrow or, or some emotion uh, that was coming out, but generally, she was cooperative. Lisa tells police she last saw Paul three days before his body was found. She said that the last time that she saw uh, Paul was on, on Sunday, the 25th. She tells the police that she saw Paul right before she was to leave to go to church, and he told her that he was going to be leaving for a few days uh, on a business trip. When detectives ask what kind of business Paul was involved in, Lisa says she doesn't know. She would say that he would often leave town um, and be gone for a few days, and then he'd come back, and she was not real sure where he had been gone or who he was with. She indicated that she knew that he was getting money in, in less than lawful means, but was unable to give us details on what those unlawful means were. Lisa tells detectives that wherever Paul was going, he went well armed. He had two 380 automatic pistols, chrome, uh, that he referred to as his twins that he would generally carry with him when he went to the local nightclub scene. Um, so we started building that picture of uh, might have been a little bit more into some of the criminal activity in the area. The investigator notes that a 380 is the same round that took Paul's life. Lisa adds that the weapons have been missing since February 25th. When she got home from church, she said that Paul was gone, guns were missing. His vehicle was there, but his stuff was gone. She didn't know what happened to him. Given what Lisa says next, this danger might not be over. She started advising us that her house had been broken into, uh, that several items had been stolen from the house. But at that time, she did not report that burglary. She says that some clothing, jewelry, and a VCR are all missing from the house. Did he have enemies that would, would go to this extent to actually murder him? She didn't advise that she knew of anybody. Detectives ask Lisa for Paul's phone number and carrier. She gave it to them, but she told them that it was registered to another woman, Aisha James. Lisa claims that she has never met Aisha, but a few weeks ago, the woman called her and threatened her over the phone. Lisa says Aisha told her that Paul was her man and she needed to back off. Lisa says she hung up and never heard from her again. Lisa did not get very emotional, um, but she indicated that she wasn't happy about it. Lisa fears Aisha might not be the only woman who may have taken an interest in Paul. Paul Sheila was labeled as a ladies' man. He loved to hang out and be in clubs with women. When you start dealing with affairs of the heart and jealousy, uh, it tends to bring out a different side of people. Coming up, detectives get an unexpected lead. Some people were saying he was there at one nightclub with two women. They went to identify these women who supposedly may have set him up for a robbery. And questions arise about the victim's secret life. She said he did have some enemies because he was quote unquote mouthy. It was just an eerie feeling how he was talking. It made it seem like someone was after him.
As a SNAP listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case I learn about, I'm reminded how much I want to prioritize my vigilance and preparation. That's why I use and recommend Simply Safe Home Security. My cameras have alerted me about trespassers and even given me a sense of security knowing my home is safe even when I'm not there. Simply Safe offers protection for the whole house with advanced sensors that not only detect break-ins, but fires, floods, and other threats to your home and getting you the help you need for each scenario. The indoor security cameras offer privacy shutters to ensure physical privacy when you want it. Plus, you can try Simply Safe for 60 days risk-free. If you don't love it, return your system for a full refund. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/snapped. That's simplysafe.com/snapped. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. After interviewing Paul Sheely's girlfriend, Alicia Lee, investigators in Florida believe their murder victim may have been romantically involved with a second woman named Aisha James. On March 5, 2001, detectives locate 20-year-old Aisha at the Jacksonville area clothing store where she's employed and bring her to the station for an interview. I was pregnant. I was seven months pregnant with my son, my Paul. Aisha tells detectives she was devastated by news of Paul's death. I almost fainted. That news, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was a lot of emotion. Even to this day, it's still a lot of emotion. Aisha says she and Paul have been dating for nearly a year, and that it all began when Paul walked into her store one day. I liked his personality, and I liked that his style. He, you know, he had a real eye for clothes. As we started talking, he was like, "You're nice looking," you know. Um, from that moment we met, we was together every every other day, um, and mostly, mostly on the weekends. We've had a good relationship. We asked her when the last time she had seen Paul Sheely, and she advised on the same Sunday, the 25th. Uh, in the morning that Miss Lee had told us that she had seen him. Aisha says that just before he left that morning, the normally light-hearted Paul suddenly turned serious. It was a deep conversation about life, and he just said that he did some things that he's not a, that he's not proud of, and it kind of scared me when he said that. It was just an eerie feeling how he was talking and made it seem like someone was after him. Miss James advised us that he did have some enemies because he was quote unquote mouthy um, and told us about the, the twin 380 pistols that he had, just like Miss Lee had said. So far, Lisa and Aisha's stories line up perfectly. 
Investigators ask Aisha how much she knew about Paul's other woman. How I found out was through my coworkers. Um, they kept saying, now you know that Paul has someone. He has a girlfriend. And I was like, okay. At the time, I was young. I was just in love and infatuated with him. I was just like, okay. He's with me now, so yeah. We talked about making our relationship a little further than it was. Like, like a little bit after I found out I was pregnant with my son. But we never really got deep into details of, of that. In fact, Aisha says she only spoke with Lisa once when she called Paul's phone number weeks earlier. She answered the phone, and I think she, she questioned me, and I, and I told her who I was. I think at that time, she cussed me out. She called me a bitch, and she said, don't call his phone no more. Aisha's story directly contradicts Lisa's account of their interaction. So detectives aren't sure who to believe. You've got a lot of things running through your mind. We were able to subpoena records through the, the phone companies of both Miss James and Lisa Lee and of uh, Mr. Sheely and uh, started tracking down the people that they had spoken to. While detectives make their way through phone calls and contacts, they receive a tip from police in nearby Jacksonville. According to Jacksonville detectives, information about Paul's murder case has been circulating in a local convenience store. I recall Detective Russo advising me of a convenience store in the area where a lot of information comes from. So when you start hearing that somebody who's an owner or a worker at a convenience store comes up with information, that's something that piques your interest. They spoke to the folks who worked there. They'd heard some people were saying he was at one nightclub with two women, and so the word on the street was that he had been killed by those women. Detectives canvass the neighborhood, hoping the rumors will spark a lead. The investigators talked to a lot of people. They talked to friends. They talked to convenience store owners. They spoke to the folks who worked at these nightclubs. The interviews lead investigators to a man named Franklin, who claims he was at the Moncrief Lounge with Paul on Saturday, February 24th, the day before Paul disappeared. The area where Moncrief Lounge is, uh, is one of those areas that there, there tends to be a, a little bit more criminal activity. There has been shootings that take place up there. Franklin tells detectives he saw Paul leave the nightclub with the two women. And the rumor on the street is that they killed him for his money and jewelry. They went to identify these women who supposedly may have set him up for a robbery. Franklin says he only recognized one of the women, Lemetrius Mimi Wanton. On March 12th, two weeks after Paul's body was discovered, detectives arrive at Mimi's home in Jacksonville. There's no way to know if this person you're talking to is a, is a witness or, or are they a potential suspect. Mimi admits that she and her friend, Melanie Weatherington, were with Paul on February 24th. According to Mimi, Paul and a few of his friends had picked up her and Melanie around 9 p.m. She says on the way to a club, they stopped at a gas station where a woman approached Paul. The story was given to us that he had at some point left because 
of confrontation with a woman uh, who was pregnant. Mimi says Paul talked to the woman and eventually got back in the car. Later that night, Mimi says she and Melanie walked to a different club, and when the bars closed at 3 a.m., they called Paul. Her and her friends were reaching out for Paul to come pick them up, uh, and they couldn't get a hold of him. According to Mimi, she never heard from Paul again. One detail of Mimi's story immediately stands out to detectives, the pregnant woman. Detectives have to consider the possibility that it could be Aisha James, who is seven months pregnant with Paul's child. Is it a crime of passion? Is it, is it a domestic situation? You've got a lot of things running through your mind at that point. She brought up this pregnant woman, but they couldn't say that this woman actually did anything to him. I don't ever recall that person ever being identified. Over the next few weeks, detectives interviewed dozens of associates of Paul, Alicia, and Aisha, but none of the interviews points to a possible suspect. Miss James had not been ruled out, but there was nothing indicating that she or Miss Lee did it to the point where we'd be able to uh, move on them with a arrest warrant. With no other leads to go on, the case starts to go cold. We had done a lot of legwork on this, done a lot of interviews to find out what happened. And it was still an unsolved murder. So for it to not come to fruition where we had a better idea of, of exactly what happened, it's a frustrating situation. Coming up, a cold case tip line presents a new lead. He named the place where it was dumped, so that was pretty credible. He's going to do what he can to make money. In November 2001, nine months after his body was found in a North Florida waterway, Paul Sheely Jr.'s murder remains unsolved. To try and drum up new leads, Paul's picture runs in The Victim's Advocate, a cold case newspaper. It's a reoccurring newsletter, and some of the same articles appear on and on again, particularly when there are missing persons. The hopes were that someone would see this case, have information concerning the case, and then contact the authorities. And that's exactly how this happened. On November 13, 2001, a man calls the tip line after seeing Paul's name and picture in the victim's advocate. Then the man came forward to law enforcement authorities to give them information on individuals who may have been involved in this particular murder. On November 15, 2001, the tipster meets with investigators. He says he is friends with a man named Danielle Ducey Reddick and Ducey's girlfriend, Patricia Bryant. He says that one night he and Ducey were talking about Paul's disappearance. Ducey had told him about this, this murder, the murder of the victim. He gave him some information about moving the body. He talked about uh, how he was paid. According to the tipster, Ducey and Patricia had been hired to dump Paul's body in Uly Creek. He named um, the place where it was dumped. It was credible to the fact that 
His body appeared to be moved, and he was saying it was moved. And I know he got some of the victim's clothing, some of his shoes. Um, he got the victim's guns and some jewelry in, in, in exchange for getting rid of the victim's body. Who had paid Ducey and Patricia to get rid of Paul's body? The tipster wasn't sure. All he knew was that Paul had been killed in Jacksonville, not in Nassau County. This new information takes the case out of the Nassau County Sheriff's hands. We started contacting the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office more about the fact that this might be a murder that had taken place in their jurisdiction. Unlike quiet Nassau County, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office has a backlog of homicide cases. We are plagued by uh, violent crime as it stands right now, uh, mainly homicides. The gangs have been allowed to fester, and now they're going after each other back and forth. We led the state in homicides per capita. It can be a violent place. After Paul Sheely's case is handed off to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, it quickly gets lost in the shuffle. As with many cases, the next case comes along, and the next case, and the next case. It's extremely frustrating for that to take place because it still shows up as a homicide on, on your books uh, because you can't prove it happened somewhere else. So technically, it was still a homicide that occurred in Nassau County, and we take that very seriously. Uh, we don't want unsolved homicides. It's not until February 2003, two years after Paul's body was found, that the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office has the manpower to tackle the investigation. In one of our case staffings, there was information brought to us involving this guy Reddick and his girlfriend. Now we have some individuals that we can focus on. Detectives run Ducey Reddick's name through a law enforcement database and discover that he is already incarcerated for attempted burglary. Investigators go to a prison interrogation room to talk with Ducey. He wanted to help himself, and he began to give information on the angle of, if I know something, I, I'm not involved, but I might know something. Did you not talk to the person who shot Paul Sheehan? Um, yeah, I talked to the person who wanted him shot. And that makes me who, sir? It's not uncommon for incarcerated people to tell you um, stuff that's not true to put a better light on them. Let me ask you this. Did anybody threaten you? Make you say what you're saying? No, he just told me what you're doing. Did anybody promise you anything? Did you make any promises in exchange for information? No. As the interrogation continues, Ducey lays out the events leading up to Paul's homicide. Apparently, Miss Lee was not happy with Mr. Sheely. Lisa had been fed up with Paul's actions. Um, thinking that he was fooling around on her, and she'd had her feel of all of that. According to Ducey, that's when Lisa asked him if he would take care of her problem. He's one of these guys who is, he's a hustler. He's going to do what he can to make money. He asked me what I do, and it wasn't hard to end up killing anybody. And what did you tell her? I told her, you know, 
no way that I wouldn't do it. Ducey tells police that he thought the issue was done. But on February 25th, Lisa called Patricia, her voice shaking. She said she sent him on his way. Mimi sent him home. Mimi was her. Ducey came over to her house, to, to Patricia's house, and then they all went back over to the house. And Paul was in bed. What did you see a bullet wound in the room? She needs help in taking the body out. So they take Paul's body and wrapped him in a shower curtain. Ducey says that they eventually called two more people, Robert Williams and his girlfriend, Levita Mitchell, to help load Paul into the back of a truck. They were going to just dump the body. Robert's like, hey, if you take it out there to Nassau County, the alligators are eating it's sad to say this man was thrown out like trash. When the body was dumped there, some of the victim's gold jewelry, of which he was known to wear a lot of, was divvied up among some people. Oh, she gave me the own um, Jordan shoe and some drink from um, Kevin Garnett. It reminds me of a person who has no conscience that this was a cold and callous crime. On April 4, 2003, investigators obtain a search warrant for Lisa's home. I called her up, went over her house, and met with her. And I um, got a consent form from her. I explained to her in the consent form what we were doing. And I explained to her, you know, if nothing happened in here, this show nothing happened in here. And she agreed. She was calm. Uh, she was collected. She didn't appear to be overly nervous. After Lisa leaves, CSI teams get to work. This was about two years after his death. We decided we want to luminol her home. Though it seems like a long shot, after just a few minutes, the technicians get a positive hit in the master bedroom. When they told me they had some hits, I was happy because it's supportive of what we're hearing. It was blood. And it's not just a little blood. I walked in, and I was like, holy smokes, you know? I'm like, holy smokes. It's, we got drywall, we got wall, we got carpeting, we got flooring. I had to pick my jaw up. Coming up, police confront Lisa. Why would your property be with his body? She got the shaking. And the disturbing truth is revealed. His hands become shaking and She exhibited that to me that that was evil in her, that she had no conscience of what she did. After Paul Sheely's murder, a luminol test conducted by the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office found a large presence of blood inside the home of his girlfriend, 31-year-old Alicia Lee. On September 26, 2003, detectives confront Alicia with the evidence. We've gotten to the heart of the matter about we've developed information that, you know, you wanted him killed. And it's like, no, no, no. She kept saying that he left, he went out of town. 
Lisa played along the whole time. She proclaimed her innocence. She portrayed the victim in this case. As the interview heats up, Lisa pulls a pair of reading glasses out of her purse. She ended up putting some on, and, and you know, they, they kind of kind of looked and looked at each other like, wait a minute. Detectives realize they have seen a nearly identical pair of glasses before at the dock where Paul's body was discovered. Detectives dig the glasses out of evidence and show them to Lisa. First, she said, I had something like that. I asked her, well, whose are those? And then she said, those are mine. Detectives tell Lisa where the glasses were found. Why would your property be with his body? She got real nervous. She got the shaking. Lisa saw the walls closing in on her. Lisa had nowhere to go. She had to come clean. We confronted her with the information that we knew, and she confessed. After her confession, detectives roll the camera to get her story on tape. Lisa tells police that she made the decision to get rid of Paul in early 2001 and reached out to her friend Patricia's boyfriend, Ducey Reddick. She paid him for the advice that he was giving on how to kill him. She was paying him for that. He said, you know, if you crawl out the inside of a potato, you going to get a the Lisa tells police that on Sunday, February 25th, Paul returned from the club just as she was getting her kids ready for church. She said that she was up, she was doing laundry, and he came walking in, and they, they said exchange words, and um, she figured that this would be the day. She was just fed up with Paul um, being a ladies' man. She had had her fill of all of that. A person who has no criminal history whatsoever, they still have a breaking point. And she she reached her breaking point that day. Yeah, when got got in the bed and lay down, and then I would up front, check on the kids and stuff, and you know, you know, taking care of them what they needed for us, something to drink and more food and stuff. So when I went back down, he looked like he was asleep, and I went back up front and told him to stay up front. And then I went back, then I went back, got to the bathroom. Lisa says that she took one of Paul's twin revolvers and placed a potato on the end of it. While her children ate in the front room, Lisa stood over her boyfriend's sleeping body. Show me how you pointed the gun at the kid. I was trying to use two hands, because his hand was moving. And I was trying to, I was holding it in his hand, Kind of, you know, hold everything. And this hand just kept shaking, and then the trigger, the trigger went, and the, the potato exploded. It happened so fast. Uh, she put the gun away. She hid the gun uh, in the closet. After you shot him, what is it? I ran out of the room, and I, I was, um, it was. For some reason, there was a towel on the floor, near, right outside of the dress, and I picked it up, wrapped the gun in the towel, got my purse, told my kids to come up, told my kids, I'll come on this stuff. And then we got in the car and left. She took a gun and murdered with her children present in the same house, and then after that, go to church. She resumes her life as though 
nothing ever happened. And that was it. And I'm like, damn. It would have been easier to just let him go. But she didn't. Lisa says that she came home later that afternoon after dropping her kids off at her aunt's house. When she comes back, she has to determine what she's going to do with Paul, who's in the bed dead now. So she calls a couple of her friends. Uh, she advises them of what she's done and that she needs help in taking the body out. She told us what the other individual's participation in this was that enabled us to uh, arrest them. On October 23rd, 2003, police charge Alicia Lee with first-degree murder. They also arrest and charge all of her co-conspirators for their involvement in disposing of Paul's body. A child care worker decides to kill her boyfriend. After the cleanup, she goes back to taking care of somebody's children. She exhibited that to me, that that was evil in her, that she had no conscience of what she did. I was really, really devastated. It was devastating, and I felt like it was a coward move. It was speculation that because me and him was involved, that she was jealous, and that's why that she snapped. She was just angry, an angry, angry person. Each of Lisa's co-conspirators takes a plea deal and is sentenced to between three and five years in prison. After accepting a plea deal of her own, Lisa is sentenced to 30 years. How she only get 30? I don't even understand it. Like, she's crazy. That's crazy. I'll never have my dad again, ever. So, I mean, what justice is that? Crimes of passion tend to be some of your more violent crimes and, and crimes committed by people that generally wouldn't commit a crime. My dad just wanted to do right by his kids and, you know, live his life. That's it. That's all he wanted to do. And I was taken from him, you know what I mean? Because of somebody else's jealousy. As of 2020, all of Lisa's co-conspirators have served their sentences and have been released. Alicia Lee has served nearly 20 years of her 30-year sentence. She will be 51 years old when she is released in 2033. For more information on Snapped, go to Oxygen.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.